0: Welcome to the Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co hosts, Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening.
1: The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at com.
0: Hey, listeners, Uh, before we get to Sarah Archer's interview of Sarah Johnson Allen, just want to uh, let you know, if you hadn't heard yet, that uh, Sarah Archer and I released a book together. It's called Death by Podcasting. As two podcasters, we thought it'd be fun to write a comedic mystery about, well, two podcasters who find out that one of their three upcoming author guests intends to kill them both, but they don't know who or why. Kind of a fun comedic uh, mystery that uh, you know, we 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 poke a little fun at uh, podcasters and authors, and in the process, uh, you know, we're telling this story of podcasting with authors in a little bit different way. Because you know, after all, podcasting with authors can be a dangerous business. It's available in print, uh, ebook, and audiobook wherever books are sold. Uh, you can uh, support the podcast when you buy the book and uh, I think it's a whopping price of $2.99 an ebook and nine 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 in print and an audiobook is somewhere in between. So yeah, check it out, uh, you know, support the podcast and uh, hope you'll have a fun read in the process. And now let's get to Sarah Archer's interview of Sarah Johnson Allen.
2: Hey, readers and writers, welcome to episode 369 of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words and where reading and writing topics take center stage. I'm your co-host, Sarah Archer, and I'm here today with Sarah Johnson-Allen to talk about her literary fiction debut, Down Here We Come Up, which is a novel about three women who have lost connection with their children through alienation, adoption, and across a militarized border. Ana Reyes, author of The House in the Pines, says in exquisite prose, Sarah Johnson Allen explores motherhood in the face of wrenching economic and racial realities of the American South, yet we use movements of joy and exhilaration throughout. Down Here We Come Up is written with such empathy and grace that I felt I knew these women and will carry them with me for a long time. I know I certainly felt the same way in reading, so I'm excited to talk to you, Sarah. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So um, when I read this book, you can really feel on every page, like the heart that went into it, the work that went into it, the research. Um, And I know it's been a long journey to get here. I I think that you said previously you started writing this about maybe 15 years ago. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about that journey and, and the process of writing this and getting it published?
1: Sure, it is kind of a long story, so I'll make sure I try <laughs> to give you the highlights. Yeah, um, but I finished my MFA um, at Emerson College in 2006. So I graduate, or no, did I graduate in 2005? I think, and it was like December. Um, and something I had written, and like for a short story, was the very beginning of these characters. And then not too long after that i really i started this book but it was really about something else it was about the main character kate it was definitely about the north and the south it was definitely about moving away from a place that's not good for you into what should be a better circumstance but it's still um it's like kind of fraught and it was a lot about her kind of choosing her ex-boyfriend Um, who's kind of trouble in one way or her current boyfriend who's this sort of Harvard professor and he's kind of trouble in another way. And the main character is about 26 or so and I was a little bit younger than that but I was about her age. Um, I'm now 46 and when I was editing the final like um, final copy edits and like I guess galleys or I don't know this summer, I was like editing a line it was like the mother Jackie was 46 and I was like how did I oh wait gosh, did 20 crazy. years go by did 15 years go by like so I think kind of what happened is I do have a full-time teaching job in that meantime I had three children um and I didn't have the teaching job when I started it so it was just a lot of things had to be built um beyond this book um during that time so that was I um, mean there was a period at when I my first two sons were born um I want to say my second son was maybe three or even maybe two. And I remember thinking, like, I was start, my colleagues, like, from Emerson, were starting to publish their debut novels. Like, their work was starting to come out. And I kind of was like, well, they don't have kids. They don't know. And it's like, nope, they did. I was like, well, they don't teach. They don't know how hard it is during the summer. No, they do. And I realized I had just kind of fallen away, um, just trying to survive. And I took, like, a writer's retreat. And I, that's when I really returned to that book. Um, and I want to say my, that kid is 13 now. So I mean, again, it's all like a blur. The timeline's a blur. So mm-hmm. I started it a long time ago. A, l- a lot of things happened. But when I returned to it in the last, I would say, gosh, I don't know, seven years or something, um, I got more serious about it. Now, I still couldn't really write during the semester. So a lot of my writing has been, in, I do have a teaching job, which has huge like time off Mm -hmm. um, in the summer where I would write sometime in January I would write. Um, And I want to say, so that I guess the writing process took me longer than most people I know because I was working full time and I did have kids and we didn't have like a ton of family around taking care of them or anything like that. Now that said, I also have trouble focusing. So I got to take some of that on myself that I'm (laughs) not the most diligent like I still am working today to get a writing schedule going. I, it's very hard for me. I work best like in a hotel somewhere or writing residency somewhere. And that's just not feasible mm-hmm. um, all the time. So I'm working on that. Um, and then I guess the publishing piece of this is somewhere in there. 2018, I won a version of this book, won the Key West Literary Seminar, uh, Marianne Russo Award for a novel in progress. And that was a really big deal. Um, because again, there's an all there's I think I was listening to one of your writers say recently, I was listening to your podcast, and it was like, no one's waiting for your book, like or maybe it was the other the other host, but it was like, you think, like, oh, everyone's waiting for my book, like no one's really waiting for your book per se, unless you're really famous. Um I forgot what I was trying to talk about. Oh, so you need this like validation along the way, and that was a really big one. that's like, okay, this is not a waste of time leaving these like small children to like go hide away and write in these little places where I should be cleaning my house or whatever I think I should be doing. And because of that award, um, my now agent reached out to me and said, Hey, I'd love to take a look at this if you don't have representation, but it still took a couple rounds of sending it to her where she's like, this is so great, but you know, something's missing. I was like, okay. (laughs) You know, and the year would go by and I'd work on it when I could. And finally she signed me. And in 2019, we went out on submission, um, yeah, so we went out on submission in 2019 and we got tons of feedback from editors um but the in that those rounds like it wasn't picked up and that was really really hard and then the pandemic hit and then we all questioned our lives mm-hmm. i told you this is a long story um but after like a, you know let's see i'm not sure exactly what it would have been some point in 2022 um kind of returned to it sent it back out and it was picked up by black lawrence press and so in the meantime, I've pretty much finished another novel. I just, I never thought this book would see light. So it's been really wonderful that it actually has been able to enter the world.
2: Yeah, that, that's such an amazing journey and a testament to how difficult writing and publishing is, too. <laughs> that, like, because I think you also won uh, the Big Moose Prize in 2022 for this, right? Um, I did. What, before it was published. So it's like, even, even winning these, you know, high level awards before the book comes out it still takes work to get an agent and get an editor and get something into the world um but yeah also a great example of just like the the value of putting intention behind your writing and making time and space for it whatever that looks like for you if you know there are some writers like you who really value or or get a lot out of taking that dedicated time to go somewhere and do kind of like a big writing binge or a retreat for themselves some people are able to do it a little bit every day but you know with work with kids with everything going on you made it happen and you persisted and here we are and it's out so
1: yeah uh, it's a great I, testament. I, I am proud of that just because it really it was not easy along the way and then you feel I think women especially feel like like I always felt bad about it like even when I, I got into McDowell which is a really prestigious like residency I was with like world-renowned artists. totally didn't feel like I belong there but it was like a very transformative experience but I'm like pretty close to where that is. And so I had my husband like bring up my kids and like Mm -hmm. took them to lunch and then like felt really bad that I wasn't like, it's just, but I knew I needed to go there. Like I I would not not go there. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I think there's a lot of pressure to like wait. Like people sometimes be like, well, why just wait till your kids are older. I'm like, well, I guess it's like, that's how I feel about gardening perennials or like cross stitch. Like I'm definitely going to take those up as like a hobby (laughs) when I'm older. Like I can't wait to have more time on my hands to maybe become a runner, but like, for me, writing was always something I did. And it's also what I went to grad school for. Like, you would never say to like a scientist, like, well, maybe you can do experimentation, like, you know, after your kids are done with college. Like, you just (laughs) wouldn't say that. So, but I felt it. I felt like, yeah, why am I not? And of course, in the meantime, of course, I was around. So, but I think we often carry like a guilt of all the things we should be doing. And it's hard to like, put that aside and just proceed.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's so true. And you have to you have to believe in yourself and your work and find value in it before anyone else does. Because, Hmm. like you said, like, there's always going to be those voices, whether it's other people or coming from your own head, they're like, this isn't worth it. Or I have other things I should be doing with my time. Um, I think especially because writing a lot of times is not easy to monetize. It's Hmm. difficult to look at as a real career or people think that it's not worth spending the time on it. Um, So you have to say, like, no, this is important. And even if nobody is out there waiting for my book, I want to see it out there and I want to make them wait for it <laughs> or make right. them want to see it. So, uh, so yeah, you just have to have that persistence. Um,
1: I think I was just the last thing I was going to say is I mm-hmm. think the pan, the, the pandemic was that for me where it wasn't just about money. Cause I did come to some point where I was like, Oh, I have like three children. There's no, even a bestseller, like there's no scenario where I really quit my job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I live in an expensive place. Like that's not going to happen. Um, I just forgot what I was going to say. Oh, um, so I kind of let that part of it go. But but there also, when, when, you know, during the pandemic, I feel like we came up against like our mortality in a way. I yeah. was like, so I don't really take care of myself or cook healthy food or go to the gym because in the times that I'm not parenting, cleaning, working, which is like slim, I'm, I'm sitting at a computer. I was like, is that how I want to live? Like, should I do that with my time? Mm-hmm. Or should I go hiking? <laughs> like, I <Yeah>. don't know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, but the, some of that cleared as the pandemic did, where it was like, well, you can probably do more than one thing, right? You know, it was just in that time we had to like question, like, is it how are we going to spend our lives? So, yeah, yeah.
2: We have an affiliation with Libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them. And when you do, you support independent bookstores. If you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks, use the promo code Charlotte Reader and claim your free audiobook. Talking a little bit more about the book itself, I know you mentioned that this the original kind of germ of this was in a short story, and the characters were there. Um, and I loved your characters in reading this; I felt like they were so fully drawn, like they could be real people. Um, so I'd love to know a little bit more about kind of the inspiration for the characters. Did any of them come from real life inspiration? Was there maybe like one who came to you first, and then the rest followed, or how did you draw these characters?
1: such a good question. I, I feel strongly that all these characters are really fictional. Mm-hmm. Like my mother who lives in the Charlotte area is like nothing like Jackie. <laughs> like she's not. <laughs> um, but if I look at that, like, for example, that mother character who I think came to me pretty early, I can see some like, I, not, I was not conscious of this when I was writing. So it's not like I'm definitely more of an intu. I don't know if intuitive is the right word like maybe unaware, (laughs) it's better. It's like, I don't really know what I'm doing or what I'm trying to talk about until later. And so I can look back in my life and think about some kind of low key con artist people I've known that were doing things like that. Um, But I didn't think about like, let's make this woman a con artist based on blank, so and so and so and so. -and -so." Mm -hmm. And then There was like a person in my life who had a difficult time with and someone's like, you just need to pour all of that into this character. So that might have been a little more intentional. They're like, just take all your rage and all your. (laughs) But what's funny is I ended up, Jackie is probably my favorite character in the book, the mother. And even though she's so problematic, I think more than these little pieces I may have like drawn from people I was around that were frustrating or doing kind of devious is maybe a strong word, but I guess they're devious. It was like my own feelings about motherhood are in Jackie. I don't live in her circumstances. So I'm not like pushed up against the wall with a lack of resources, but not so much now that my kids are older, but there is just such a time where I felt like my own identity was swallowed. Um, And in the case of Jackie, she sort of, she still has a very strong personality, but she was really smart. She did have, was in college and then she, you know, became pregnant and came home before she graduated and that closed some doors for her. Mm -hmm. So although that wasn't a a total parallel, I definitely think she came from some of my feelings about like, I think all three of the mothers, Kate, Maribel, and Jackie, all of those people have something to do with motherhood for me in a way that I personally experienced. Um, So, and then are little pieces of like, for me, setting is also like part of the characters. So like my in-laws owned a greenhouse, kind of like the one in the book, not the one I'm going to read a little section from like, like a university greenhouse, but the Mm -hmm. one where the character Smith is like in this family owned greenhouse and the business is shifting. And so I definitely took that not again, not consciously, I just started writing and it was like the floral shop with the ribbons on the wall, like, but I knew I knew people, you know, who lived in that. And then um, certainly in down east North Carolina where my father primarily, um, he grew up on a tobacco farm and then later it was run or is run was run by my uncle um, and became like a turkey and hog operation so we moved around a lot so the only place that was really the same for me every year was that area where my father had grown up and now like of you know my cousins have lived and my aunt and uncle, even though my aunt just passed away la- last year. Um, and then this place we would rent a house at the beach. So I was really drawn to talk about that area. And so that area is like experienced so much change because of economic demands of agriculture and like the de- demographics of that area have shifted. But that's what I'm saying is like, when I started this book kind of leaving my MFA at Emerson, I don't think there was nothing about migrant workers or nothing really about like hog operations <laughs> in that book. It was about um, something else. And so that happened over time. And I don't even remember making these decisions. Like, I don't remember being like, oh, let me include because I think it just happened. If that makes sense.
2: Yeah, totally. I think that's the way the creative process works. A lot of times, and it can be almost hard to figure out where your inspiration comes from. And I know sometimes, at least in my experience, it, it's like, you'll get an idea that just appeals to you as a story or a character comes to you. And it's not about you in any way. But then as you're writing it, you start to realize like. Certain or emotions or, or themes from your life or recurring thoughts that you have do kind of work their way into the characters in the story, but they're not there in a literal sense, but they do sort of inflect who these people are and what they're going through in some way.
1: I think so. And I think it's funny because people have asked me why. So the main character, you know, has really thick, dark hair and she tans really quick. And that actually ends up being like part of the plot of the story, right? Mm-hmm. Is that she can kind of maybe pass... Um, for different ethnicities. And, but that was like, that all happened later because of how I had like described her or made her physical characteristics. But I remember, I do remember in the very beginning, I was having trouble sustaining energy writing it. And if if the character looks anything like me, um, I know like Rick Riken was a professor at um, Emerson. He talked about author, narrator, character merge. Like you have to kind of separate them out. Mm-hmm. And the reason that main character tans and has really thick, dark hairs, because I needed to, like, if you could see me, right, I have, like, red hair with freckles, Mm -hmm. and, like, I can't go out at noon, like, (laughs) ever in January, or I burn. Um, And so it was funny, because that started as a way to separate myself from the character, because, again, the people I know who tan move through the world differently, right? Mm -hmm. They just do, like, you don't, whatever, it doesn't matter. It's, like, a small, tiny thing, but it ended up having a big impact on what the story was about, Yeah, yeah, it's this weird mix of knowing and not
2: knowing. Right, right. That is so interesting how it just evolves that way. Um, But yeah, I do the same thing sometimes where I intentionally, especially for female characters, I'm more worried about like basing them on myself in some way, I think. (laughs) So I try to give them qualities that are uh, distant from me or different from me. Um, Mm -hmm. And it helps to kind of keep that mental separation while while I'm writing. Um, But you talked about um, the plants some and also the idea of like, Upbringing and family obviously is huge in the book, and on the the cover, um, our listeners obviously can't see it, but uh, they can check it out on our website in our newsletter. But there's an image of a plant and a kind of the root system of the plant. Um, and I believe you said before that you had some input into the cover, um, and I'm wondering if you can talk about you know what that image is, where it came from, why it was chosen for the cover, and how that relates to sort of this theme of roots in the book.
1: Sure, um, it's really interesting because again, I was listening to one of your podcasts talking about the control that you have with independent publishers. And I was really in that kind of big second round after the pandemic, I was careful about who I sent the book to. Like I happened to go to AWP, which is the big national conference. And I went and looked at every press's table. And if I didn't love the way the work looked, if I didn't feel like they were significant and meaningful, like if they did, like I looked for things that looked like they would match my work and like had a good literary, I I don't know what I was looking for. Um, And when I, I really liked Black Lawrence Press's, um, like their website. I could tell they were professional. I could tell like the support was there. I could tell that their list was significant. So when I submitted it to them, one thing I did not know or understand is that as opposed to with a really big publisher, I would have input, not just on like my cover, but my title and some other things that were important to me. And they did a lot of editing for me, but um, I did get input on the cover and that image is from an, an artist named Joan Linder, who I actually met when I was at McDowell. So this really, you know, like biting my nails, like the first time I went, I couldn't. I feel like I could not walk into the dining room that night. I like of kinderg- like an eighth grader. I stood mm-hmm. outside, like I can't go inside. This is like so intimidating. Um, but that was kind of what came of it for me with these deep relationships with artists from different genres, whatever. So um. Really liked her, loved her. Um, and then on Instagram, saw just the image of the roots. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> is there any way I could like have my publisher talk to you about like licensing this work? And then when she sent me the whole image, so I, at first, again, I only saw the roots that are at the bottom. When she sent me the whole image, um, I was like, well, that's cool, but I'm mostly into the roots. But then when the cover designer put it together the way that she did. And then it kind of mixes in with the title. And when I first saw this, it's like the font is green, and the plant is more red. And I was like, that's Christmas, I don't (laughs) like it. And in retrospect, and I have talked about this, but this is one of those things that was kind of intuitive. I like this, but then the professionals like a professional cover artist pulls it together in a way that you realize, this is why you kind of let people do their jobs and and say like, this looks really good. But I've been taught when I've been talking on book tour about it. I realized that even though these were just kind of decisions that happened along the way, this cover is really representative of these verticals in the book. Mm-hmm. Like it's like moving between the, the North and the South of the United States, the United States being North of Mexico and various pipelines of, you know, not just like immigrants or migrant workers or people seeking asylum or people crossing the border. Um, but also other things like, um, well, Yeah. So other things like drugs and guns, I learned a little bit about drug and gun pipelines, like guns move south out of the United States and drugs move north. And that's all based on demand. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and then the other vertical that I kind of realized when I was looking at this cover, that's a representation of the book is that um, about social class, there's so much about social class, and kind of intersectionality where like, the character Maribel, who is from Mexico, is a college-educated English teacher. But once she loses and becomes like a target of somebody, um, of sort of like corrupt forces, she she loses that power. And she steps over a line where now she has less p- power or class um, standing than Kate, who is not college-educated, who is po- who did come from a poor family. So I was really fascinated by where everybody is on this vertical. But again... I just saw like a really cool thing on Instagram from mm-hmm. an artist that I loved. And she was so kind um, to allow the publisher to license this. And then, and now when I look at it, I just, I'm so grateful that yeah I had that um say, even though I didn't really know what I was doing, <laughs> but it came together. Um, but that's, again, I think a statement as well to the press, like Black Lawrence. I think Diane, who's like the um, editor in chief, I feel like, she kind of helped me through this prog- process, which I knew nothing about. Where I'd be like, what is happening? And she'd be like, this is happening. It's okay. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah I think that's uh, for a lot of debut authors. it's It's definitely like a what is happening type of process. So it's good to have... <laughs> Uh, someone to steer you through that. But yeah, it's a, it's a great cover. And it's an image that does work, I think, symbolically in so many ways, Mm -hmm. in addition to just being like a visually striking image. Um, And that idea too, that you're talking about of like verticals and and movement um, between places or between sort of states of being or classes, um, borders, both literal borders and metaphorical borders, that's such a big theme in the book. And it sounds like when you first came up with this concept and with its characters that wasn't necessarily as big of a part of the story or at least like the the u.s mexico border part wasn't as much there that was not there yeah so i i'm curious like how did that come into it how did you get interested in that what sorts of research did you do because you go into a lot of detail in the book about kind of the process of moving between the u.s and mexico border or, or across that border um and what that looks like for people so yeah how did how did that come about
1: I mean, I think a couple ways, like a million years ago, when well, not a million years ago, when I was, I think I was 19, I had a roommate for, who lived in Los Las Cruces, so we had gone down to Juarez for the day, and I, re- again, this was like, I was just a tourist visiting, um, and I remember like there was real fluidity in that border, and I think in the news, maybe about the time that this book, I, I'm not sure exactly I'd have to go, I did when I was researching it, but there was some period between that time, and like probably 1997 or 98, when I was there. To, I don't know how much long after, but where Juarez became like a real center for the drug cartel, um, women were going missing. There was like, I think it was the murder capital of the world for a while. And so, it's somewhere in my just kind of watching the news perspective, was this um, idea that a place could change so drastically, like um, because of like sort of economic or social forces. And I think paralleling that is that. Eastern North Carolina has changed a lot, again, like I had mentioned. And I do know people who had who have come to the United States, um, and particularly in kind of North Carolina, where they come, they stay. They are undocumented, um, but then they have children. But like their their labor is the reason that I mean, I, you know, the reason that there is pork on our shelves and turkey on our shelves and produce on our shelves. Um, So the industry kind of has to accept it because a lot of people in those areas, like the one I'm writing about is like success as you leave. So I was really interested in that, too. So like Kate's brother is like the first thing he's trying to do is get out of this rural place and he's never going back. Right. She feels differently about it. But like, what do you do when the measure of success is you leave like but someone's like family has been somewhere for like centuries or, you know, even if you don't have wealth, that's a home place that you have. So I think, again, I did know some people, not in these exact circumstances, but it was interesting to think, like, they probably have the money to buy the land now, but I don't think they can't. They can't buy the land now. They cannot legally engage. And so just all of that. And then in North Carolina, it's very rapid change, like a shift mm-hmm. in, like, who lives there. And I don't know. I would just see that when I would go home, Um and in, in, a, in a positive way for overall the culture. But, you know, I don't know. What does that mean if you can't? I, does that make sense? Like,
2: yeah. so it's happening
1: on multiple levels.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And as far as research, two key things. Just like my teaching job, I could not do it without the internet. Mm-hmm. I feel like um, I remember that first writing retreat, watching YouTube videos of crossing the border in Juarez. And that was probably a time when there was greater security than when I was like, crossing. And of course it matters who you are. Like if you're white crossing from the north to the south, you can cross very easily. But as soon as that shifts, you cannot cross back and forth very easily. Mm -hmm. Um, But I learned about like century passes, which are something that allows you passage more easily. Um, Anyway, all of this to say, lots of internet research, lots of YouTube. Like when I had to describe the streets of war, I was like, I didn't go back on a research trip just because like Again, I work full-time. I have three kids. I'm not going to whereas anytime soon. I live far away. So I would – people might know this, but there are a lot of um, – you can probably, pretty much pick any town on YouTube and find someone driving around recording it.
2: Yeah, that's a great idea for research. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
1: because again, like, I can't go there. Like, I can't. I, or, like some of the places in the West, I like I don't, I don't, I can't, I'm not gonna pay for a flight and go out there, whatever. So, a lot of internet research. And then, one thing I was really careful about doing is when I got the contract with Black Lawrence, um, I did say my contract needs to include the hiring of a sensitivity reader who is an expert on this. Cause I'm definitely, just cause I know some people, sort of like, or, you know, I've, I've been around some stuff, I'm not an expert on it at all. And I don't have that personal experience or even close to it. So we hired um, Alejandra Oliva, um, who wrote The River Mouth. She just brought out a nonfiction book. I think it was in June. And she was like a professional sensitivity reader who has worked with, as a translator, with people seeking asylum. Um, And she's from a Mexican-American first generation. She's first generation. And she was able, she's also kind of, not kind of, she's sort of an immigration expert, where she would say stuff like the internet can't tell you. She's like, listen, this is like, you're making it sound like Obama era immigration and this takes place during Bush era immigration. And like, this is what you've got wrong. And like, I could do internet research all day, but I might mess that up. And then she did say, I don't wanna give anything away with the book, but she did say like, this kind of, this person would not take these risks. And you'll know what I'm talking about. Like this mother would not take these risks, but, and I won't say it for readers who like a little more of like the page turning aspect um, of it, but I, believed her I believed um my sensitivity reader but I also was like but one thing I wanted to explore on this book is like for me as a mother and those circumstances there is nothing I don't think I would do mm-hmm. like my kids annoy me all day like I can complain about them indefinitely but I would do anything to try to get them to me if they were away from me and mm-hmm. I wanted to like explore that even if it wasn't Maybe like not how that person I, I, does that make sense? like I just was like I have to have that tension because mm-hmm. for me personally, I want to push the like extent of my exploration of what I would do
2: yeah, for my children. Yeah. We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts dot com, or SpellboundPublicRelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. Everything you're talking about with the research is a great example of how to research a place that you're not necessarily familiar with or a topic that you're not familiar with and sort of the layers of starting with the internet and there's so much you can do there, but then bringing in a sensitivity reader or an expert and getting the kind of human actually being able to ask a person questions is I think really key when it's an important part of the book um so yeah it's just what's really interesting
1: I was gonna say one more thing on top of that is that I paid a couple friends um one who works a lot with um immigrant families and her family's from South America not this particular area but she had it actually was funny because she went to Harvard and she was like little things you don't even think about she's like yeah, the Harvard class at history class is not called Intro to U.S. History. <laughs> like, you need to go. I was like, oh, right, right. And then I had another friend who's from this area. And when she, like, she would just tell me things. And I realized, oh, yeah, I am being a stupid white girl, kind of. Like, I. she, she was talking about her own experience. And I was like, oh, right. Maribel would have had a passport. She would have had, like, she's middle class. Like, she mm-hmm. would have. But th- so then I had to go back and... Think about why would she lose her paperwork? Why would she lose her ability to like show her citizenship or like? And that became a plot point that I I changed because I was like, right, people, some people, social class wise can can cross all the time. It's just a matter of when you lose that. But uh,
2: yeah, so yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It's it's hard because it's like there's the known unknowns that you know that you have to research or look up, mm-hmm. and then there's the unknown know. <laughs> and and to your the point, the more you
1: talk, right? The more you talk to people, the more you read. Mm-hmm. Um, I did read a lot of books, like nonfiction by journalists about Juarez and th- a lot of this sort of immigration issues. And but yeah, I was I was terrified to do it and thought maybe I shouldn't do it at all. But I just kept kept coming back to it. That the book wasn't about whether she picks her boy ex boyfriend or new boyfriend. It's about these three mothers. And I was pretty deep into the project where I was like. I just love how they all have something the other doesn't, and I can't let it go. So I hope I didn't do too badly of representing people.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, for me, it's it's not a topic area that I'm an expert in, certainly, but it felt very authentic and well-researched. Um, yeah, and the characters were, like I said, so believable and involving. Um, and I have a few more questions I want to ask you about the craft and also just about like your experience of launching and publishing this book. Uh, but before before we get into those, can you um, share a little bit? Can you read us a passage? Sure.
1: First chapter, it's where um, the main character Kate shows up to work in this university greenhouse and her mother, who she hasn't talked to in a while, calls her. The morning Jackie Jessup called to drag drag up what her daughter Kate had tried to put down, Kate was checking the roof fence at work in the university greenhouse. 87 degrees, 56% humidity, 821 AM. Kate recorded it all on the chart by the control panel. After a bad weekend, avoiding, avoiding her boyfriend, Charlie, she was glad she was the first one on the shift this Friday, alone with just the sound of the ventilation fans. Everyone else who worked at the greenhouse had a master's or Ph.D. in botany. Kate only had a GED, but she knew what she was doing. She had worked in greenhouses since she was 14. She could effectively deadhead, pot, prune, graft, irrigate, and transplant, rarely consulting the databases other staff members used to see if something was full sun or partial, or how far one thing needed to be planted from another. Except for the employees, Katie loved her work. Kate loved her work. She loved the invisible business of growing. She loved how at first there was nothing but the blackness of the soil, some constellations of white fertilizer, but nothing visible, until the heat and light on the surface created enough pressure for something to push through. Kate wound her dark brown hair on top of her head, then twisted in a pencil to secure it. The thick bangs she was trying to grow out fell across her forehead. She pushed them to the side as she lifted a limp habanera plant out of its plastic pot with her thumb. Root rot. All the antifungal soil in the world wouldn't help if the others who thought they were too good for that part of the job kept replanting seedlings too deep. Kate was finishing recording the blossom yields from the habaneras when her phone vibrated in her front pocket of her khaki uniform shorts. She flipped it open to see a number with an unfamiliar 210 area code. She was about to clap it closed, then realized it might be her brother, Luke, from someone else's device. She answered. I thought you were already in Nantucket. Kate held the phone between her shoulder and cheek, silence on the other end. Hello? I reckon you were expecting someone else. Kate could not reconcile her mother's voice with the neat rows of plants or the lines on her graph paper her skin already damp from the greenhouse's humid heat, she felt a drip run between her shoulder blades. Jackie said, I know you're there, Katie. I can hear you breathing.
2: Charlotte Readers Podcast is on social media, and we'd love to have you follow and engage with us. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Charlotte Readers Podcast. Check us out. Throughout the book with your prose, that was something I really enjoyed was the incorporation of detail into the writing um i pulled out a passage just as an example um there are so many like this but this is when kate is returning to her former home um it says when the woman in the lavender shirt pushed jackie's bedroom door open in front of kate cold escaped as if from a walk-in freezer it was dark inside a roller blind was pulled down to the top of a humming window unit jackie's room had always smelled a drug store perfume and cigarette smoke now it smelled like a hospital, rubbing al- alcohol and something earthy and foul, Kate couldn't quite place. Um, and just in those few sentences, like you're using what, like maybe four out of five of the senses were really there <laughs> with Kate. Like I feel like I'm walking into that room with her and seeing it and feeling it and smelling it. Um, and so, can you talk a little bit about, from a craft perspective, how you use detail in your writing? Is that something that you? put in on the first draft or do you layer in later? Do you do like visualization exercises? Any sort of tips for other writers about how to write with detail?
1: Um, I think the first thing I would say is that um I'm definitely a language first writer. Mm -hmm. Like meaning I just want to play with language and make the words like I, I like a realistic kind of writing, so I don't mean like overly flower, but there's something about like that's kind of what I start with. And I don't know where that comes from. Like, I'm just drawn to like, a way to say something and and detail, I guess details make the language more vivid. So meaning like, if I was just gonna say like, she walked into her mother's bedroom, like, I would I would actually rather go running than write that sentence only because what draws me to like, choosing to write is something about the puzzle and the painting or the layering of the art of the language. So that's just my natural interest in writing is more language-based, so it might just give more space to like putting in those details. And then I will say, um, as much as I've had to work full-time this whole process, I do get professional development money, and so I've gone to lots of conferences, lots. And so Muse um, in the Marketplace in Boston, AWP, um, which moves around the nation. And so I have – besides, and besides doing an MFA, but probably more recently – just craft sessions where you learn, I'm sure. I hadn't thought about the five senses when you said that, mm-hmm. but I definitely have been to some craft sessions, which are like think about um, the sense, uh, like the five senses when you're in scene. Um, and then the other thing I will say I've done that I don't think I was taught to do this, but I started doing it was like mapping stuff out. Mm. So, like, I would draw like a room or I would draw. Um, especially when I'm tired of words, like I'm like, I just love words. And then I also like, I hate words, go away. <laughs> so sometimes I would make myself like sketch out something um, and then like, li- like list things in a room or like, I don't know. And then again, I I mean, so much of this process is not intuitive for me, like the sitting down and writing and being consistent is extremely impossible for me. But I like my father, who doesn't read much fiction. So I was honored to have him read my fiction. Um, Kept saying like, how did you know that about the Bojangles uniform? And I was like, what do you mean? (laughs) He's like, what? Because he like lives in Charlotte, so he's like, I go to Bojangles more than you. Like, how do you know that it's a visor? I was like, I don't know. I don't Mm -hmm. know how it's a visor. So then I got really nervous. So I was like googling Bojangles uniform. (laughs) And we go once a year. Like when I go back to the beach, we. It's more my brother. I'm more of a Waffle House girl, but he always is like, first stop is Bojangles. Mm -hmm. And. But I guess when my dad was asking me that question is, I don't know, I I have that image in my head. Like, and I had a former student who came to reading and she's like, did you do research to describe these details? And I was like, well, no, I don't know, what do you mean? And she's like, like the hog houses. I was like, I don't know, once you stand in a hog house, you never forget what it looks like or what it smells like, you can't. So there's something about the way my brain works that I can just see a lot of those things. And then I like playing with the language to write them up. My challenges are just in other areas. Like, I don't know.
2: Yeah, yeah. I I think that's interesting because a lot of writers are sort of like magpies. Like they they pick up on little details and images, whether it's of people or places or, you know, things like what does a Bojangles uniform look like? <laughs> like we store those <laughs> things and then somehow they come out in the writing. Um, agree, yeah. Yeah, but I love the idea of like, using visual exercises too and maybe mapping things out or drawing things and just activating a different part of your brain that can really help
1: and especially when you're tired and and I have taught like um used to run like a writer's retreat and I remember teaching like a little mini workshop on this when I am really tired and I'm not a good artist but I would even draw my characters like and mm. just a sketchbook I've also a friend of mine taught me this is like going and clipping um actually this is something I would do for sure, that I was taught, uh, My one of my friends, Caitlin, who's um, a writer and creator, she will go like pull images from Google images of people. And she'll often start with movie stars. Mm-hmm. Um, like she'll just pull like, fame, she'll be like, I think that this person looks like this. And then from there, she'll kind of like pull. And I I think I had definitely done that where I'm like, I don't know. You, yeah, you get tired and yeah, you're
2: yeah.
1: like, okay, well, what does a person have on? their body. Oh, a hat. Oh, facial hair. Oh, like, so yeah, I guess I have used some tricks like that.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I've heard people say that they use Pinterest sometimes as a way to put Mm -hmm. together like a mood board or character comp images, that sort of thing. Um, But yeah, this is so pivoting a little bit to like your publishing journey. I, I wanted to ask you somewhat about the kind of promotional and launch process I know we first met because we did a signing together at um, the editions bookstore in Kannapolis Mm -hmm. and you've been doing a lot of promotion for this book it seems like and going to like different bookstores and interviews panels podcasts all of it Um, and since this is your debut novel what has that whole process been like for you and maybe any lessons you've learned along the way that you would impart to other authors or things you might do differently next time for for book number two
1: yeah I think um the first thing is, even though this is my debut novel is coming out now, I had been attending or involved in the literary community. And I'm talking about post MFA, mm-hmm. in a pretty significant way. So like going to muse in the marketplace, and that's a conference for anyone, it's a national conference, anyone can go but um, it's like the muse is the art and the marketplace is the publishing. So that conference in particular, brings both of those in has lots of agents, lots of editors coming in and explaining why they're doing why they do what they do. Um, And I, and also a lot of artists and writers, but it's sort of that intersection. And I, I went to that at least for four or five years in a row. um, And learned a lot there. And then a couple key things happened. Um, One is really small, but a really good friend of mine was on book tour once, like this is like years ago. And we went to Newtonville Books, which is a really amazing bookstore in Boston where a lot of like authors go. And it was like a Tuesday night and many authors will relate to this. And I was in the audience. It was like me and two other people in the audience with these two authors doing their book like thing. Mm-hmm. And my friend and I are both like Gen X. So like we didn't grow up with social media per se. And I remember I could tell my friend was like very disappointed about the turnout. And, there's the, and the other writer was a little younger. And she was like, oh, it doesn't matter the turnout. Turn your camera this way. And stand yeah. in this bookstore and take this picture and tag it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> like, because – and so that stuck with me. And then something else happened, which is, like, you could argue, like, I feel like some people would argue, well, that then it's fake. It's like, it's not fake. You went to that store. You you had this experience. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, like, when I was with you in Kannapolis, partly because my mom's, like, book group was there, it was like, there were a million people. So yeah. sometimes it feels – but the point is like you've you've arrived and you are doing it. it's just as valid, regardless of the external validation. so that was like this one night where I was not even on the table, but I was like, that's a really important way of looking at it mm-hmm. um The other big thing that happened for me, which I'm grateful for, is again, I said, you know, black Lawrence did like a q and a or they hosted a session with a publicist to basically explain what she did you could you could hire her um But she was trying to tell you what the process was. But what I understood in that meeting, and this was probably last September, maybe, I feel like it was the school year. I understood, oh, sorry, I understood how important a publicist might be. And on top of that, perhaps most importantly, when I went to AWP the spring before that, I went to a panel where big five publishers, and I think you all have talked about this on your podcast, but like. Big five publisher, uh, people, sorry, authors publishing with big five, like huge books, all the way down to like more independent publishing, all of them had hired publicists. Mm-hmm. All of them. And they were trying, and they gave numbers. They're like, this is how much I paid. This is how much I paid. And I was sort of there like, I, will ne- I don't know that I would ever make. <laughs> like, yeah. not that I would." Spend. Mm-hmm. But for me, another important thing, and then I'll kind of come back to a, a grounding point on this. I had to I think I already said this but I realized that there was no scenario whether I sold the movie rights or not. I had a friend who sold movie rights. She told me what she made and I was like, "Oh, yeah, that there's no scenario where I have to, I give up my full-time job but then my goals changed. It was like I want recognition, I really love some good press from like I would I don't know, like it shifted my goals and that Black Lawrence press Session with the publicist was very much about what is it you actually want. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important for writers, really, really important. And then my I asked my agent what she thought, and she said yes. Um, and she gave me a recommendation for Pine State Publicity, which is based in North Carolina. And I think one other person who is one of these people who like if he takes your book, you'll like be on NPR and New York Times mm-hmm. because he is who he is. But of course, he was like, nope. <laughs> which is fine. Um, and pine state publicity is the one that, how I met you, how I got all this stuff because they're very smart and like partnering you with people or they're just great. So, um, and Zoe alien Howard is, was the my main publicist on that. And so I'm really grateful. I did that one because I could never do that myself from a time perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, and also, I don't know the booksellers. I don't know other writers in North Carolina and beyond. Like, I don't know. Does that make sense? So yeah. I am lucky that I was exposed to so many lessons from so many different angles that were like, just let someone help you on this. Because like, I don't really have anyone to help me clean I'm clean or like, you know, cook dinner or like take my children to soccer. Mm-hmm. So like, that's harder to outsource. But this was, and I and I know how to do those things. I don't know. Well, what's ironic is I'm a marketing communication professor, so I do kind of know how to do those things, but maybe that also gave me an edge because I understood that that is a true skill and that you really kind of – you can do it on your own, but why would you hire a professional to do that?
2: Yeah. Well, it's it's even like you talked about this with the cover too, like let people who do these things professionally do their jobs (laughs) because you can can have ideas about like how you want to market the book or how you use some of your own connections. But yeah, having that professional publicity help, I think – more and more for authors. You can't just rely on the publisher, even if you're with a big five press.
1: And I think you said this on a podcast, but I had another friend who she has sold a lot of books. She she's has like four books out with big a big publisher. And she would say, yes, they did this and this and this, but that's it. Mm-hmm. Now those things were pretty big, but for like sort of a sustained, I, I don't know. I, I think I, I, that's probably the best decision I have made. Um, or one of the best decisions I've made is kind of having someone help me with that. Yeah. And then the other thing I've done and we'll see how long this lasts like cuz you have to preserve yourself at some point is I pretty much have never said no to anything. So someone's like, "Do you want to come to my book club?" Yes. Mm-hmm. On a Sunday night an hour away? Yes. <laughs> I mean, eventually, I don't know, maybe I'll get really tired, but or, "Do you want to do this?" Yes. "Do you want to even at work?" They're like, "Can you come talk about this?" and I was thinking, I don't have anything about my book on that so I'd have to create an entire presentation in the middle of the semester that's gonna be a lot of work and I was like yes mm-hmm. and that's not a publicity thing so much as it is like like the students in there. may or, like that's not I'm not gonna sell a book but like I had an opportunity to talk about intersectionality in my book and like so I just try not to say no but you do have to preserve yourself at some point too
2: yeah yeah that's so true it's it's a real balance um but it, any way that you can like build your network and read people and just get out there and talk about your writing and about the book is so huge. And it does seem like for you, like that sort of, it takes a village mentality has been helpful with, um, with publishing this and promoting it. But even just along the way, like you, you mentioned that you've been involved in the literary community heavily, heavily for years, even before publishing this book. Um, and I, I noticed in your acknowledgements, you even shout out a lot of, um, sort of organizations and and people you're involved with like the qs literary seminar um the mfa from emerson college the latelier writers community different grants and fellowships you got from like mcdowell and elizabeth george foundation um i think you mentioned a bunch of individual writers and editors who've read for you along the way so it sounds like you've built a very robust writing community for yourself in your your years as a writer um can you talk a bit about that and sort of the role that other writers play for you in your, your writing and publishing life?
1: Yes. Um, some of my, well, one of my really closest writer friends is someone who I was in a writer's group with at Emerson. So that started there. And that was a group where we would read each other's work. Um, Mich- So, it, so, and the, my friend, Michelle Vaya Jones, um, she now we actually just started, like we have a spreadsheet, <laughs> like, we haven't always done this. We've always stayed in touch. And she was someone who, um, when I was like, I was actually pregnant with my first kid. And I was like, I don't know. I don't even know. I was like, had just started that full-time teaching job. Or had I? No, I had not. I'm sorry. I just kind of was like, yeah, I don't really know. And she was like, you have to keep writing. Like, mm-hmm. she like pulled me aside in like a square in Switzerland where she lives now. I was like, do you hear me? You're, you're the one. who have to do it. And I was like, that stuck with me. And even now today, now today we don't really, she had, she did read my book um, and I've read some of her work, but it's more like an accountability, like, Hey, what you doing? Mm -hmm. And we just started like something we're going to do for the next month. So there's that kind of stuff. That's more like what people think about um, with like a writing partner. Although I find that because I am so busy, unless we're at a critical point, I don't want to, I can't read anyone else's work and give them meaningful feedback. Like there are almost no minutes in my day Mm -hmm. (laughs) that are free Mm -hmm. or even in my month. So I've moved more towards like relationships where we are checking in on each other, but we're not necessarily involved on a line level. Um, now if I was a different place in my life, like a weekly or monthly writing group would be cool. But like, I have found some of that just like checking in, long-term creative relationships is important. And then the other thing that has happened to me is there are people who have just come along along the way that I don't. I mean, they they might not even know the power they've had. Like, so when I went to QS Literary Seminar, um, Michael Lee was the poet winner that year, and Dante um, who wrote Milk Blood Heat, which a lot of people will know that short story collection was a short story um, winner. That was before the her book came out, and I remember being like. I'm too old and it's like too hard for me. And she's and she got her it's a long story. But she she learned that she had won the Elizabeth George Foundation award while we were there. And I was like, "Well, I can't do that cuz I work full-time. Like I'm just annoying. Like I kind of annoy myself with my defeatism." She's like, "That's not true. There's no there's you don't have to move anywhere. There's no teaching requirement. There's zero reasons you can't apply for this." Mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh." <laughs> and so again, like I mean, I'm still in touch with her on social media. She was at McDowell one time when I was there, but like, I don't talk to her every day, but she changed my life, (laughs) you know? Like, um, so just, and there's other people like that along the way. So and just kind of show up and say something and you have to like keep that with you. Um, But I think sometimes, and I will say this as someone who ran a writing retreat for five years. So the pandemic kind of made it like, you know what, let's not do, we'll put this aside and do some other things is that, sometimes workshopping is not good, like depending on where you are in your work. Mm -hmm. Um, And a short story is different to me. Like maybe a short story, maybe always like workshopping works, but like if you're working on a longer work, I don't know, that's tough. Um, So that's just my sort of thought on it, I guess.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think that shows like the variety of roles that writers can play for each other. It's not just about beta reading or being in a critique group together. Sometimes it's, being each other's cheerleaders sometimes it's like that tough love of like your writing is worth putting in the time and effort and I'm not gonna let you not do that <laughs> um yeah, yeah I had yeah, the two huge. people
1: Elena Dillon and Karen Olagudu, who are two of my friends they don't know each other mm-hmm. but they both serve the same role where I think like, it's just really hard for me I can't possibly and
2: they're like mm-hmm enough <laughs> <laughs> like that's, that's right. nice you feel that way
1: <laughs> proceed yes <laughs> yeah i I know i
2: need that sometimes i think most of us do (laughs) for all things charlotte readers podcast check out charlotte readers podcast.com you can find a list of all episodes an alphabetical guest list with links detailed show notes for each episode a community blog and more we'd love to have you visit well, before you we wrap up, I want to ask you a question that we ask most of our authors, which is if you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice as a younger writer, maybe like when you were first starting this book, um, what's something that you would want to tell your your younger writer self?
1: It's so funny because what author did I just, I'm blanking on his name, but he was like two episodes ago. I, was, I loved the episode. I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. I knew it five minutes ago. He said something kind of similar to what I was going to say. Mm-hmm because um, you're sort of like, well, these papers are due, or I have to clean, or I have to like, I, I'm tempted to turn my camera so you can see the laundry over there. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think what I did for a really long time is I would get all those things done first and then write. Yeah. Now, so two things, I guess I would tell myself, don't do the laundry and don't whatever, but it's easy, that's easier said than done. So I think what I might have, which I, I wish I could tell myself is that Like, it's okay to invest money, like pay to go away for three days if that's your process. Like, I would always feel guilty about that. I'm like, well, I should just get up at five and write. But like, I did get up at five because my kid was up at five. Mm -hmm. So what, should I get up at four? Like, what really works for me is to just walk away from my life for a little bit. But I've done, I, I always felt bad about it. So I guess I wish I did that more early on. Yeah um, and not kind of let the weight. And I still do that. Like, again, my kids aren't much trouble anymore. They're trouble in different ways, but not really. And I still have trouble. Like, I don't teach on Mondays. so That's supposed to be my writing day. I've yet to write on a Monday, Yeah. but I've only, I've just owned it to myself that like, that's because you need to pay for a workspace in town. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't want to pay for a workspace in town. I don't want to like risk any debt. And it's like, no, you, you'll never, you won't do it. Like, yes, you have an office at work. Yes, you have a house. Like, it does – there's something about me and my – I guess I wish I had accepted that my brain and my process are what they are mm-hmm. and just gone and accepted that and gone and done the things that I feel like I need to do instead of being like, today I'll write for an hour. I will never write for an hour. Mm-hmm. Like, I probably won't write for an hour, but I will write for seven
2: hours yeah. if you put me in a
1: hotel lobby somewhere and I don't have to make dinner.
2: So – Yeah, yeah, I get that. It's like everyone's process is so different. And you hear people say advice about like, you have to write every day or you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do your morning pages, whatever it might be. Um, But, you know, people's brains work in different ways and people's lifestyles are different. And just figuring out what actually works for you and committing to that and finding ways to make that happen. That's so huge. Um, But sometimes it can be it takes years sometimes just to figure out like how you actually write and how you can actually be productive.
1: And I think it's good to go for both ways. Like I should, I should be writing daily pages of some kind. Like there's really, but it's the same as with running or exercise. Like I definitely have 15 minutes or half an hour to go for a walk, but I don't go. (laughs) So, and so yeah, just kind of, you have to kind of keep fighting, but that's where again, those partners come in or like talking to people. Like I, my friends and I now use like Marco Polo, which is like, um, it's like an asynchronous video app. And so sometimes I'll like say, well, here's what's going on and it's really unfair. Like, you don't know how hard it is for me. Like I'm always doing this. You don't know how hard it is for me. I have so much work to do. But you know, this is the year with my teaching, like my teaching is the lowest in 15 years and next year it goes back to, it's gonna be so much more work where I heard, and I heard myself say that and I was like, oh shoot, then that means you better pay for that workspace. I went and booked like a hotel, which was like, but we don't have the money. I'm like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> You're doing this. Like you have, you know, you work best, like whatever. Um, I booked those things because I had a sense of the year. Yeah. So even just voicing it, I was like, oh, right. This is an important writing year. And if I don't carve it out, it will slip through my fingers. So.
2: Yeah. I, I can relate to a lot of that. And I'm sure a lot mm-hmm. of our listeners can. Um <laughs> <It's> hard. <laughs> yeah, it is. But, you know, it's it's wonderful and it's worth it. And you produced an amazing book out of
1: it. So. Oh, thank you, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah.
2: And we, we really appreciate you being here um, and sharing this book and sharing so many great insights, I think, for both readers and writers. Um, and so thank you for being here with us. And uh, listeners, thank you, too, for being here with us and listening. And until next time, we on and right